record. And we're off. This is a Raven's Nest production doing a part three that's going to be broken down even further into other parts because it just will take so long. And that's covering a topic in our series, the nakshatras. The nakshatras, as you've probably heard us talk about on all our episodes, is what makes Vedic astrology awesome. And uh, to know about where yours are and what planets you have in them, uh, contact us for a reading. Now, um, on that note, there's all types of readings. So if you're a beginner and you just want to see what your chart looks like, or you want just to see what nakshatras you have and you want to do your own research on the nakshatras, totally think that's okay. But, you know, there's each type can vary based on what you want out of it. So just wanted to say that because some people want all the information. Some people just want like, okay, I know I'm like first pata of this or that. Like, that's it, you know. Yeah, so astrology too, I started learning nakshatras actually kind of later after already kind of starting to study. I, I started studying with Kapil Raj and um, it was almost like I, he, he started learning or, or sharing more about nakshatras at a certain point in his astrological journey um, if you keep up with him on YouTube. So it was kind of nice the way had started learning about lordships and houses and the planets and the signs. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now there's something else called the 27 nakshatras. Right. And it was like, holy crap. We just went and hit a gold mine of knowledge. Um, that a lot of people don't talk about, you know, it's like, you can think about like the houses and the Rashis or these signs as like you buy this plot of land and then like you get a surveyor to come out to the plot of land and they tell you what type of property you can build on this property. Right. And your charts like the property. So, you know, that first frame of the property you could say is the Rashis. Right. Yeah. And then as you build up, it goes into like the nakshatra zone, which is like, what does the house look like? Is it going to be facing north, south, east, west? Is it going to be like near water? Is it a two-story house? Is, is it, it modern, contemporary? Or is there going to be like a moat around house? it? Like all these yeah. things. So you can think of the nakshatras as like the natural progression of the depth of Vedic astrology. So it never stops, really. I think once you think, you know, okay, like, all right, I got my sidereal chart and now I'm like, totally a fire sign when I thought that I was an earth sign, you know, or I'm more earth sign dominant because we don't isolate the chart that way. We don't look at the chart like, Oh, I'm just a sun in Leo. It's like, no, I have sun in Leo. I might have sun and moon in Leo, which would make a total difference on the type of person that you're dealing with. If they have a sun and moon in Leo versus just saying like, Oh, I'm a Leo sun like the more information you give a person the more they're going to understand themselves right or why they yeah. make the choices they do yeah definitely um and nakshatras really 
if you want to stick to the face value of how we are, we're always like, yeah, I am Leo or I am a Capricorn. Um, you can say, yeah, I am a Porva Vajrapada, you know, and if someone knows that as your nakshatra, they'll kind of already understand you much deeper than like a, or any other regular astrologer would. Yeah. Um, it's like a, it's like you're telling somebody, Hey, you know, um, I'm really into mystical things and I'm feeling good when I'm doing mystical things or studying mystical things. And I'm not feeling good when I'm not allowed to study those things. It sets me off and it makes me feel like super fiery. And I happen to have been into dragons when I was a little kid and, you know, could be a Porva Padrapada. Yeah. It's like someone that's into like medieval role playing games, you know, or like they like the idea of the Loch Ness monster. Yeah. Now, um, so why don't we start chakras. today with a different series? Yeah, we'll be jumping right into something special about um, these nakshatras. They all have their own deity. What do you mean and, by that? Okay, yeah. Oh, no, they believe in multiple gods. Yeah. That's yep, Hinduism kinda... does allow you to worship like thousands of gods. I believe Just kidding. Not worship, the but... intricate layers of universal power that we may not understand and grasp as... You know, little human beings here for just a short time, and then we disappear. Um, so these nakshatras are said to be the the abode of the deity. Right. So if you want to try and visualize this, this is where a lot of people get lost, and they're like, oh, "I don't understand Vedic astrology." Let's let's make it simple. Here we are on the Earth plane, right? We've incarnated. And on the earth plane, just above earth, there's the sun and the moon, right? So they're in the sky. The sky is above the earth, right? And John D, the great Renaissance mystic, always said we live in a sublunary world, right? So we live below the moon, right? So we live below the moon and the sun. And above the moon and the sun are the constellations, in the heavens right and that those constellations they they are in the same kind of path in line as the rashis so the rashis run horizontal but the nakshatras either go all the way from the ecliptic all the way out to space right so some nakshatras are closer to the galactic center and some are closer in outer space. So that gives you a perspective of how far out some of the realm of the abodes of the deities are. They are far out indeed. Now, a deity in my eyes is something I don't think they even want people to know in the West. Um, here's my quick uh, spiel on your two cents. The, the fact that if there are places in which we source a lot of our uh, grasps of reality, meaning if you're a certain nakshatra and the deity plays out a certain myth 
and you happen to experience something very similar in your life as far as the actions um, and, and just overall play out of the mythology, in some sense, you could come to the conclusion that we are no different than those gods and goddesses and, uh, you know, higher beings that apparently were a part of our story, you know, many, many, many moons back. Yeah, I so. like that. I like that um, perspective because I think, you know, the the great thing about the East is what they call Santan Dharma. You can ask a hundred people and they're all going to tell you they believe different things. They have all they all have different household deities, right? They all perf like perform different rituals under the umbrella of this belief system, which honors many traditions but it's more of an indigenous kind of tribal tradition like what native americans used to practice or you know uh, indigenous people to australia right aboriginal culture i think santan dharma or what they call hinduism is very similar in that and that these deities like you're saying they lived these lives a long time ago, but for us, it seems like so long ago that they've become deified, right? They are almost like gods because we don't have a real tangible idea of what their lives were like other than these great stories. And we're that kind of, I don't want to say lower level, but we're a more human manifestation of those things. So we study the nakshatras in the way that yeah, you might encounter the themes of these deities that were born in these times that are, you know, what we call the part of the nakshatra. So uh, like for, we're going to go through the first nine nakshatras and we're going to talk about their deities and the associations and myths of those deities. Yeah, so let's start, start with good old Ashwini, like everyone else that starts with the first nakshatra. Allegedly, the and first one. first one is uh, the Ashwin Kumars of the deities. Um, and we'll, we're going to maybe touch on some of the mythos a little bit and then share more about maybe what we know as far as uh, what that deity brings to the nakshatra, right? Yeah, so this is 0 to 13.20 in the constellation of Aries. So it's fully in Aries. Um, so a lot of the um, tendencies of this nakshatra are going to be very Martian, right? Um, and you want me to tell a story about Ashweenies, or do you have a story you want to tell? You can share it. So I want to bring it to something current. And I think uh, this is very interesting. I didn't even think about this till right now. But a lot of the Ashweenies stories have to do with beauty, immortality, medical miracles, artificial and unnatural birthing process, surgeries, and rain in times of drought, which is kind of interesting. Um, and I think when you put Rahu and Ashwini, that can make an 
ultimate wild card of any of these situations. It can make it very uh, strange and shrouded in illusion. So um, one of the old stories of the Ashwini Kumars has to do with them having a client come to them and the client was a man who had become pregnant hmm. and they needed help delivering the baby. So that was why they did a C-section was because the babies couldn't come out any other way. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. That and they talked about that way back then. And the point too being not everyone's going to have that exact drama play out in their life, but there tends to be a lot of curing or healing, right? Like you were saying. Yeah. Well, I brought, why I brought that up was because I saw a magazine had on their cover the first pregnant male, like eight months pregnant, a person that changed their sex. And so they're doing these crazy elaborate surgeries, right? To change their look. And they're maintaining the pregnancy. So it's going to be a man getting pregnant. But it was through surgical alteration that they were a man, but they still got pregnant like a woman. So it's like a very Rahu take on this early mythology of the Ashwinis. Yeah. Um, Ashwinis are, are twins too, right? And they're said to be... Um, horse-headed twins so, so do you know why there's all this association around horses being related to surya right, right. the solar chariot okay yeah um do we do we want to keep stamping on ashwini or move yeah yeah move let's, forward? let's talk a little bit more about some of the stories of ashwini uh while you look for one i have a good quote from this book here the Myths and Symbols of Vedic Astrology by Bipin Bihari. He said, Ashwini is related to the activation of the primeval energy from its state of latency. In Hindu mythology, no one is able to withstand the radiance of the sun god. Right? So that's one of the stories that starts off Ashwini is about the heat that they bring because of their association with the sun god. So you gotta be in a certain level to stand the heat. Nashwinis tend to be playful, um, tend to be driven, usually competitive, kind of tricky. It's kind of like when you observe a pack of horses what their energies like, sometimes you'll see one by itself and it's like kind of just roaming around like, doing its own thing. And then you'll see them in packs kind of going together. Like there's a, a natural competitive nature, right? Yeah. But it's a kind of a playful competitive nature, I would say. For the Westerners that listen, you could kind of compare Ashwini to like your, your ideal Aries type of energy where someone is usually not, it's not hard to get them off their feet trying things, doing different things, learning new things. These are all good for Ashwinis. Risk takers, uh, I'd say for sure. Like anything that has to do with physical body movement or combat sports even. 
right there's a lot of themes around cars driving um there's usually music can be in relation to it um i when i had taken krs's class on uh online his maga vedic astrology uh there's like this weird thing about wanting to go fast they want to go fast whether it's running driving a car like a horse what does a horse do I, if you actually watch horses they'll just start if you know if no humans in contact they'll just start running sometimes they'll just start running sprinting and you're kind of like why are they doing that and you're just like oh they're a horse they do that <laughs> you know uh, you know why uh, that makes sense when you think about the nature of the horse, because this is a, um, it's a Vayu type nakshatra, right? So when you look at the, um, the elements associated with these nakshatras, Ashwini's element is wind. And its nature is movable, which is chara, and you need the wind to be movable, right? right? So the horses like to feel the wind on their body, and it gives them the ability to go fast because they go with the wind. Yeah, and my last thing about Ashwini is it's kind of like Purva Bhadrapada when we get there, and it has to do with the dual nature. Because we'll worry about Bajrapada later, but Ashwini are twins. Right. So naturally, you have a theme sometimes of Ashwini's kind of being, you know, they, they can change shape a little bit. They're sort of like shapeshifters because in the mythology, one Ashwini was more of a helper and was keen about curing things, making things better. And one was a little more kind of a, a tricky uh mischievous character and i'm not going to break down the stories but that's some of the summation you would get out of that and that's why some ashwinis can be like it, it's to me it reminds me of that porva bhadrapada where they can be real serious and competitive and then all of a sudden um they want to go around and play outside that sort of thing so all kind of a part of the temperament. Um, should we, should we, do you have any more else things to share on this nakshatra? Um, yeah, I want to just talk a, a little bit more about Ashwini. So we, we said that it's a very Martian type energy and we brought up the sun before. So in this position, the sun is exalted here. So, these are Ashwinis and their nature has to do with very solar things, right? And the sun has to do with energy, right? But the position of the sun... Um, brings it's like you said dual because it's very healing and it's very rejuvenating but it could also burn 
right? Right, too much of the sun yeah. hurts you. Right, it can be burnout. So I think with Ashwini's, uh, the main thing for them to really try to understand is when is too much too much, when is going too fast too fast. Um, so when it comes to especially uh, themes of like healing and rejuvenation, you need to know when you've reached the point you need to reach because, you know, having Rahu and Ashwini, you see people like going for excessive uh, treatments, right? They're like over treating themselves. Right. So we're, with, we're talking Ashwini, about Rahu, why? Rahu because it's and Ashwini. transiting right now. Yes. Okay. Cause it's transiting Ashwini. So to bring it into a, into a more transit, um, uh, like now kind of what, how do you use it right now with the transits with Rahu and Ashwini? We've seen uh, from this transits beginning, the implosion of uh, people talking about medical miracles and then medical horrifying, like horrifying medical experiences. Right. And this, this all goes under the umbrella of Ashwini because you see people like I'm the healthiest I've been in like, you know, 25 years. Right. Or you see people like, trying to stop taking certain types of drugs because they realize that they developed a dependency on the drugs when they were just trying to heal themselves. And that's related to Rahu and Ashwini because Rahu has to do with overindulgence and dependency on substances. Yeah, for sure. And even relating to cars, right? There's a lot of shifts around trying to get electrical cars, whether that's good or bad. All this speculation around automobiles is Nashwini related topic. Um, we should probably get going to the next nakshatra. So, that's very Ashwini of you. <laughs> so our next one is Barani, and the deity of Barani is Yama. I like to say Yamaraj. Yeah. No. Because he is on the throne with his job, which is not the type of job that it just, you know, anyone can do. Right? Right. It's a very uh, tough position to be in, but the story of Yamaraj was that he was chosen because he was able to be completely neutral and compassionate. I think uh, Yama is just alone. I don't, it's one of those nakshatras you don't really have to go into the mythology for me, knowing that uh, the, the deity relating to death is a huge proponent to how this, the natives and the nakshatra itself expresses its outwardly manifestations. Um, There's an interesting way that um, they describe Barney here. They say Barney indicates the passive potentiality capable of providing the essential environment where the different kinds of life forces can fructify. So in less flowery language, they provide what is necessary so that everyone can coexist. So you think about like people want to say that Barney is just like this nakshatra that has to do with like cheaters and people that like, you know, have multiple wives or many affairs. But essentially 
Barney's providing a service that no one else will provide when you think about it. You know, I can think about, I know of two charts where there's Barney's and they are salesmen. They can sell you whatever the product is that they're working with. They can sell you on it. They have, you can, you can just feel their determination and they have this natural knack for business and data. Like they can learn about something just by doing it. Yeah. They're hands on, you can say. Right. Right. And and also Yama doesn't just refer to death because when you think about yoga, there's something called the Yamas and the Niyamas. Mm-hmm. And Yama refers to what do you do to prevent you know, yamas and niyamas. Yama is death and niyamas. What do you do to prevent death? What do you do to take an old form and manifest it into a new form? Right? How do you make, it says yama is the deity providing the suitable channels for a more efficient flow of life energy. And it's interesting that Yama sort of relating to transformation um, usually can guarantee Yama native or Barney natives will, um, they will have some struggles and obstacles and it's quite necessary in their growth. Um, they can come out on top a lot of times after struggling or going through every, every hero's journey, right? Um, but they tend to figure it out. And there's a natural, I'm sure this, if we really dove into it, there's an affinity to Egypt for Barneys, I've found out. So that, that to me is pretty funny that they, they kind of look towards um, ancient civilizations a lot of yeah, times. Yeah, my dad's Barney and he's obsessed with Egypt, like he's been wanting to go like his whole life. But, you know, you think about... He did go to Peru, so he kind of got a taste of it. Yeah, he did. He did go to Not Peru. that there are any similarities, but as far as being like an ancient... Uh, ancient culture. Culture. Yeah, you can even say that both cultures were heavily um, in that dynamic of feminine rulership. You know, their their cultures had uh, women kind of in the uh, forefront of certain parts of the, of the society. Right. I mean, the, in Peru, there's that group of shamans called the Caro shamans and they're all women. So and it's an ancient lineage. Um, but with Barney, you know, they're they're um, I think they're kind of a lot. Um, there's a lot of motivation in that nakshatra. There's a, a deep sense of wanting to be a provider for their family, you know. Um, and they also, um, Barney people, they might have death be part of a transformation in their life. So they might need someone to die that's very close to them for them to realize who they truly are. It, and I can think about that happening in the two charts I'm thinking about with Barney. They lost their parents or a parent, and that really made them see that you know, their well, life differently. A, a lot. It's, there's a lot to be said about, and I kind of mentioned it in our last episode, um, 
as far as time being limited, right? And we learned through the Pi team that there is a there's a big connection with Call, right? And Yama. Um, and and it's interesting what death kind of uh, you know how it in, integrates into our lives and what it triggers us to do. Does it trigger fear in us? Does it cause us to have our own sort of spiritual death and change different ways, or do we react in a way that kind of may not always be the best? It's an interesting uh, thing about spirituality when we we discuss these uh, the topics such as Yama. Um, because it arouses within us what's actually going on right now, I think. And that, you know, idea of um, what else is possible is a, a certain uh, drive of our motives that sometimes are fearful or emotional. Um, and usually these people can be quite successful because they use that energy that they use the emotions and passions of seeing people pass to to propel them even for more forward like it might wake them up to live the life that they really wanted to live because maybe exactly. with that death there was an opportunity that was severed right so you think of like what does yama do he just like let's say you're going to imagine like a traditional like oh you're yama's going to cut your head off right like yeah, you sever that once you cut your head off and you see another, there's another uh, Hindu deity, Chinamasta, which shows the head being cut off, um, which has to do with, you know, um, cutting off your ability to see things in a limited way. We will have to cut this episode right quick and we'll return with the next Nakshatra. All right, let's talk about Kritika. So we're still in Aries, but we're going uh, from the end of Aries into the beginning of Taurus with Kritika. Uh, and its deity is Agni. This hmm. is an interesting one. So um, just really quickly, Agni, I never thought about it this way, but you think about Agni is fire, right? And on a mundane level, fire is like the element of fire, right? So it's just like this burning force, this ignition. But it also has to do with Agni in your personal uh, world as your digestion. So people with prominent Kritika positions are going to have really strong digestion yeah for sure I've, here's a a brief excerpt on the mythology with kritika from vic Takara in his book 27 stars 27 gods and it's from the mahabharat it says agni's child told his six mothers until i am 16 years old i will be an evil spirit killing children slicing them up and eating them it said it is well known that warfare kills children and deprives them of their parents fire which creates acidity in organisms 
also diminishes fertility. Thus, Kritka is inauspicious for children and childbirth, as it is for all things that require gentleness and softness. So a bit of a, a just that alone from the Mahabharata. Um, and we don't necessarily have to take it so literally, like Victor Kara showed an example, is that this star a lot, a lot of times brings with it war. Um, and fighting and that fiery nature of going after something and just cutting its head off. Um, Rahu was in Kritika so, like recently, right? You love Rahu. <laughs> well, because I'm thinking about the Rahu transit because this, these past few Rahu transits have really gone into these hard nakshatras. Yeah, it's very plain and evident that it's doing something, right? But it does relate to the story that you're talking about because during that transit when Rahu was in Kritika, that's when people were, were like losing their minds over like abortion. Yeah, quite literally that was something that was being talked about, right? Yeah. So that's funny that it came so up. So the myths play the, out. It does play out. Um, and this that star Algol is notoriously known for not necessarily being the most um el ghul <laughs> uh, positive star right like even in ancient mythologies it was related to like a flesh-eating ghost spirit and stuff like that um yeah it's like the star of, it's like the star of war or but also the star of the prominent like general right somebody that's got great tactical skills someone that can uh, be an excellent speaker and think critically when it comes to very deep, vast subjects, right? Like their, their, uh, attention to detail and their ability to, uh, transmit that detail to the masses. You could say like a general transmitting the orders to the troops on the tactical warfare. Right. It's a very, um, another part of Aries that feels like a, you know, a good example of what people think of in an Aries at times, if it's a strong, yeah, you just know, a very house. masculine, uh, uh, not soft, not, not like a, a mother. Right. Yeah. But you know, there are Kritika mothers and I think here's where the mythology comes in of Kritika, because if you have a prominent planet in Kritika, maybe you know, you couldn't uh, get pregnant when you were trying to get pregnant and you had to use other methods to get pregnant, right? Like a lot of people say that this is related to IVF. Critica is related to stepmothers and stepchildren because yeah. maybe you're a man that marries a, a woman uh, and you already had children from another family or your first wife couldn't have children and the second wife you had children with. And it has to do with the mythos of the Pleiades, right? The seven sisters, like it, like in Kartikeya was, he was raised by the Pleiades, right? Yeah. So he the was Pleiades. raised by all these different mothers. And, you know, that, that's the thing with Kritika is maybe you, you're a strong mother. Maybe you're a militant mother, you know? Yeah, that's sort of the, the nature in which Strict. it comes out. Um, and it, in modern society, a lot of times Kritikas are the, the also go-getters that do become high position authorities, right? I would even say like a master chef, 
with, you know, we're talking chef. about cooking right. someone that has an understanding of the fire element, uh, somebody that knows how to feed, you know, a lot of people and make them happy by making like culinary delights. I'd say that's a critica. And I have notes with Kara saying how they'll eat, like you were saying, they will family, eat. family situations, they may adopt kids or adopt pets. And it's directly correlating to mythology, right? Yeah. So um, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, the truth is uh, stranger than fiction at times. <laughs> Do you have anything else for Kritika? There's a, here's a good uh, positive thing to end on for Kritika. The influence of Kritika builds the divine qualities in man. The, material, the materiality of existence, the demonic forces expressed in many forms, such as false humility and self-centered docility, is incongruous with the radiation of Kritika. So by their nature, they're not really malefic or material people. They have, they're, they're humble and they want to convey an idea, but it's going to be in a very Aries way. Hmm. Right. The very fiery way. Like they're, it's going to be like what we in Ayurveda call very pitta, which is going to be like, so this is really how I feel versus. So this is how I feel. You know, they're going to talk like strong and determined. Right. Yeah, they got that just, it's like a solar energy about them being sun ruled nakshatra. Um, right, and the but... solar sign of Aries, you know, the next, um, that's the last of the Aries into Taurus. So yeah. going into full-on Taurus territory with Rohini. Rohini, deity. Brahma. That's a tough one, I think. Brahma is... Uh, so in the Atharva Veda, they refer to Rohini as a consort of Rohit, the ruddy sun. The Puranas mention Rohini as one of the main daughters of Daksha Prajapati. So that's where we get the deity, right? the deity of Rohini. Now, why did I say Prajapati when you said Brahma? Because in the old texts, it was Prajapati, and then they changed it to Brahma. But what is kind of universally accepted about these two deities is that we can't really know what Brahma is. Like, we can't comprehend that, but we have an idea of it being this uh, energy of the first, right? Yeah. What would you say? Well, I have a lot to say about this nakshatra, but a bit about the mythology is that uh, from Vic Dakara again, there's a story that's very somewhat odd, especially for us to read now, I'm sure it was something oddly different that's been translated. Um, 
says regarding more conventional procreation, Srimad Bhagavatam tells a story too interesting not to mention. For Brahma to reproduce sexually, he must first create his own wife. So in a sense, his wife must be his daughter. Her name is Vak, the power of speech, and then a name for Sarv Sarvasvati, the goddess of learning. And she was not at all into the idea. When Brahma began pressuring her, his other children stopped him in protest. Ashamed of himself, Brahma abandoned his body and created a new one to wash off the impurity of his thoughts. The old body turned into a dangerous fog in the darkness. Later on, Vak agreed to marry Brahma, seeing his predicament, but the two are not a happy couple and live at a distance from one another. Ooh. So, That yeah. sounds like, I mean, that sounds like it could be very relevant to a lot of um, marriages where, you know, people have these strange feelings and it could be because it comes from like a family history, right? Because Prajapati and Brahma are, are considered like way far back, right? In the lineage, so far back that it's, we're so far removed from that lineage, but we still may bring into our lineage those kinds of feelings that were expressed by those deities right especially yeah. when it comes to rohini because uh rohini is is a very multifaceted uh and sensual uh, nakshatra and it relies on the sensory experience to build its perception of reality right yeah well, there's this one. Well, the first thing I would want to say about this deity being Brahma is that out of all the nakshatras, uh, this is one of the I believe it's the one nakshatra it's that the only one got yeah. one of the special three, you know, the little triad of, of Hindu gods, the Trimurti, yeah, Trimurti. It gets Brahma, so I naturally is Vishnu. Right. That there you go. And yeah. then Sh Shiva, you could you could relate to the the deities. There's uh, it's Ardra, uh, right? Oh no, Ardra. It's a form of Rudra, which yeah. is Shiva. So yeah. there are others, but this one's just straight up Brahma. And I think it is because that's a heavy load to carry. I think. Well, I initially think there may be a sense of power to the the, the Rohini natives, or or maybe there is. Um, there are relationship struggles because, you know, you can read this as an astrologer being in Taurus. Taurus people oftentimes may have relationship issues because Scorpio is also the seventh house to them. And anywhere Scorpio is in a chart will show you where there's going to be certain things that have to be worked on, right? Um, so that can relate to the story of how there's a some wild stuff happening to uh brahma and the love story but um the... you could also see that as like maybe the rohini native uh thinks that they can make somebody be who they want to be so that they have the relationship that they want and they alienate their partner because their partner then realizes that they're just somebody that's trying to be molded into the image that the Rohini native wants. And maybe that causes a struggle in the relationship. 
But well, once they get to an understanding of what the relationship really is, they can forgive each other and see each other for who they really are. Yeah. And that sounds pretty spot on. I mean, naturally just being Brahma deity, it's, they're highly creative people, right? Uh, they tend to be artists or business owners, or they aspire to be these things, writers a lot of times. But the downside is seems like relationships, if it's not a healthy placement, not well aspected, that Rohini may not be good at all. They might be, because a lot of Rohinis are ten, they say are romantic, but maybe it, it it's not like that. Maybe it's someone maybe that's seriously- Maybe they're romantic with everybody. <laughs> yeah, or they're seriously, maybe it's overbearing how much they, they want to put, like Victor Cara used the word pressure. Maybe they, they put too much pressure on their, their partner and that pushes the partner away yeah. even. So- Rohini is an interesting one. Sounds like one. it's an energy and, and I, you know. Rohini comes out, though, with got a symbol that brings out a lot in it, too. But we're not talking about symbols on this episode. Um, Here's a, a good one to end on for Rohini. So uh, back to the Puranas, mentioning Rohini and its consort, Rohit, which you don't hear too much about when people talk about the nakshatras. They just talk about one deity, but every deity has a consort there has to be a consort for there to be creation unless it's one of these deities that's like you know like a plant that it just reproduces itself through you know uh its own means but uh rohini and rohit uh are eulogized as the producers of heaven and earth they make the heaven and earth firm by them, the heavenly light is established and the firmament is sustained. Space and atmosphere are measured and the gods attain immortality. They are red in color and associated with the sun. And they represent the life force which gives form to the entire manifestation, concretizing, making it measurable. And it stands for the circulation of blood through which the vitality is maintained. So, yeah, Rohini. That's uh, our little dive into Taurus. And now we're heading into Mrgasira. Also part of Taurus, actually. Taurus dabbling into Gemini. Gemini. So that's an interesting energy. So this is a constellation in the head of Orion. And one of those important constellations that a lot of people see in the night sky and they always wonder about the stories. Uh, let's talk about the deity of Mrigashira, which is... Soma. Soma. People still are wondering what Soma is, but I heard um, a description from my Bhagavatam teacher where he said that Duh, Soma is like liquid from the moon. <laughs> oh, yeah, like that's so obvious. It just comes out of the moon. Yeah. But, I mean, you can look into the Bhagavatam for different interpretations. And also in Ayurveda, when we were taught about um, these different elixirs, everybody wanted to know about Soma, 
right? Because everybody was like, what is this soma? And the way my teacher described it was, it was an herb that existed a long time ago, but there are many somas. There are many herbs that are like somas. So you can call soma a life elixir. So any kind of elixir that is going to be promoting life, not so much life extension, but giving that pranic source of life, you can call soma. And you, people usually think of it as a drink, but um, you might have a story about soma, about what it is. It's allegedly Indra's favorite drink. Like the gods would get drunk on it. Yeah, and I mean, knowing that alone tells you that Jaishtas, which Jaishta will come later in a different episode for us, that they like to drink. And they love to drink. A lot of times they will be good at it. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, my um, let's say uh, somebody I know. They say that their significant other loves to drink with their friends, and they have prominent positions in Jesa, and also. Felguni. So they love drinking with their boys and watching sports and talking about chicks. Yeah. But that's some of the things that happen with Soma. It's not always like that. I think Soma is a, what they would call an Ayurveda as a Swarasa, which is a, a juice that you drink to make you feel good. Right. And people drink alcohol and they think they feel good because of the alcohol, because there's a lot of tension in the culture. So, yeah, you can say that people are using Soma, I mean, alcohol as a Soma. But the legendary Soma, I think, would be closer to what people would call mead. Yeah. Because mead is is honey and it's a sweet nectar and Soma is a nectar. Yeah. I mean, and here's something that was a, a really good point by Victor Kerr in his book, uh, talking about how um, in the Mahabharat, Soma's brother is Agni and the sister is Rohini. Mm. Um, and this is significant when we're studying this, the nakshatras, because to one side of Rohini is Soma, which is Murugashira, and then to the other side is Agni being Kritika. Um, mm. and Agni being solar principle, Soma being lunar. And then this, this combination of, of heat and moisture, as he says, uh, is, is what kind of brings out this, a lot of theme of abundance and fertility in the nakshatra of Rohini. Um, and I have something interesting to put towards that. Cause you're saying Rohini's may not be that good in relationships. So if each nakshatra builds on each other, uh, then, you know, you have the beginning with Ashwini being this really individuating energy, Barney beginning of the ignition of, like, ignition of creation, right, and wanting to create. And then you have Kritika creating many. And then you have Rohini, like, experiencing many forms of, you know, the creation. And then you have Regashara wanting to rein that all in and experience what it's like to be in a relationship because i think a lot of of the themes of mrigashira 
have to do with uh, the romantic urges that begin to intensify from Rohini to Mrigashira and how they evolve. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the, uh, it's that, it's just like a, I just think of like someone that wants to just frolic around and go to a brewery and then yeah, go talk to their friends and then maybe travel, go to the beach. And then it's like this uh, sort of, it's got that Gemini energy, right? That yeah, we that can kind searching. of sense around Gemini's a lot of times. We're like, you know, you're just a, a good friend and <laughs> uh, you love that, that mercurial nature to it um so there's always a and then there's a kind of a sense or a, a nature to it as well about being on a quest um so that that always is a part of that searching for soma right um and and they have to watch it with indulgence and Wanting, too much searching because then they'll things. never get there yeah right? so there's like this you, you want to be you want to be like hungry for things but you don't want that to be what consumes you is the hunger right gotta understand there is a there is a somewhat of a temporal nature to this reality and it's nothing to cry about it's more like we we should savor the flavor right yeah we'll cry when we get to the next nakshatra <laughs> literally let's it's, uh segue into ardra that's a perfect segue <laughs> yeah yeah let's uh talk about you know that that ardra uh, energy of um and this is gemini sorry. yeah before we even talk about this this is where certain parts of vedic astrology completely make sense of things because like i just said make sure they'll they can be light enough to not cry, but tell an Ardra that don't because they'll get mad at you or they will tell you what they think about what you just said. And usually there's a little bit of a, uh, opinion behind it and they can be pretty fiery, even though this is not fire based. Um, can be quite barren actually um so that deity we have for ardra is rudra rudra yeah so in this one it's i'll say this is one of the only nakshatras i think there's only three i might be it might be two that are considered uh, manasika which is in ayurveda we call that like it's very mental. So these people are going to get caught in a lot of mental loops and a lot of their own thoughts are going to be so far from reality that it's going to put this, put them in this delusion, which then leads them to spin out of control. And like Rudra, <clears throat> the howler scream wildly and burn everything down. And once they burn everything that down, they cry for what they lost. <laughs> you know, it's like this wild experience. Yeah. And it, it's it manifests it some in some way in their chart, usually in the house. 
I'd say wherever Ardra is happening, they tend to have those themes come up and uh, it can be hard for the Ardra person to realize because it's, it's a desire motivated, passionate nakshatra. I, I almost feel this nakshatra can thrive though more than ever before, as far as like the times we're living in. Um, because in some way they can embrace their wild side. Um, and an Ardra loses its power because there is power being, being, you know, a form of Shiva. They, they can be extremely, um, unique and they can be extremely, uh, in tune with nature. I think they, they have some, some connection to, to nature. That's not like any other, it's not the wandering Mergashira anymore. It's like, they're starting to harness the powers of nature. And they do it. Yeah, and... I think they're kind of wild and like they use their wild nature. Like I've seen a lot of Ardras that are really good with herbalism. They are super interested in that. They're kind of witchy or like warlocky. Right. They and they're sh- like and they really into nature or like archery or like these kind of hunting sports. They should they become they should the hunter versus the hunted. Like Rigashira is the hunted and then it flips over to Ardra where Ardra becomes the hunter. Exactly. Um in 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 they should always involve themselves with what may be seen as unconventional because where Ardras lose their power is when they follow dogma, when they follow the herd. And when they think that they're going to be okay trying to fit in with everyone else, don't go ever go that route. Take it as far as you want and in your mind what it should be like. Like just make it just make it moral. Don't be unethical or immoral, (laughs) but go with what your gut instinct is telling you. I think is the best thing for Ardra. And this probably wasn't much about the mythology, but we can talk about that too. Um, yeah, so I mean it has to do with Rudra. So Rudra is is a aspect of Shiva. So the Rudras are considered um very powerful gods. And it has to do with harness your energy really. I think um when you think about what Rudra is is capable of we need that destruction to create new growth in our life. So when they talk about Ardra, a lot of the times they describe it as green and moist. So, you know, um, I would say like certain parts of the South where it's very lush and green, like North Carolina and Tennessee, Mm -hmm. those are like Ardra lands because, you know, in the winter, they're so like just dead looking like just piles of dead trees and then it yeah. starts to get rainy out and then by the spring it's just these big beautiful lush yeah with, with, with green light. yeah yeah that's a great way to put it exploding with life and that's and and they should strive for that um i looked up there's a pro surfer named nathan florence and he does a really good job with cinema cinematography and videos and he is a moon Ardra and he's around that environment, scary, crashing waves, barrels, like shallow reef. And I think Ardra's really like the wild side 
and should embrace it. Yeah, like wild sports would be great for an ardra, like, you know, maybe like, yeah, like you're saying surfing or like skateboarding or, you know, um, just anything that involves uh, immersing yourself in nature. In the heart of Gemini, we'll talk about Punarvasu. Punarvasu's deity is? Well, it's from Gemini into Cancer. Oh, no, no, yeah, you're right. So it's in uh, it's in the sky where people see uh, Castor and Pollux. Yes, yeah. The That's famous Castor at. and Pollux. Yeah, uh, deity Aditi, the Aditi. universal mother. Um, is it say Aditi or the Vasus too? I have Aditi. Okay. Oh, I'm thinking about the name. So Purner Vasu has to do with the two words Puna and Vasu, uh, which can mean again and a light, a gem, or a jewel. So the Vasus are deities that appear at different levels and evolution. Yeah. Okay. So Aditi has to do with, uh, she's one of the goddesses that nourished Kartikeya. So Kartikeya, that was like the wild son of the Kritikas. Uh, Aditi was one of his mothers, just to put it kind of into perspective. And there's eight Vasus or the Ashtavasus. Yes, um, that's a one thing about it is that the Vasus deal, um, or Aditi means boundless, right? Um, yeah. And so this idea of space connects also to Vasu. Right, right, right like Vastu. Um, yeah. And as far as what I've seen in some of the mythology, uh, there's quite a lot of different things. It's a very uh, kind of like, I guess it is space, right? Uh, I think it's also a very Earth Mother energy. Um, I know somebody that has their... I think they have moon in Punarvasu, uh, but they have brought back the notion of a, she raises her children herself. She has three children. She raises them in a very connected to nature way. And, and it says here in this book, the Bepin Bahari book, that Punarvasu has to do with the revival of certain aspects of the original life essence as it manifests through the evolutionary process. So the Punarvasu person might be reviving some cultural um, aspects of their lineage that have been kind of lost to time. So like this person is trying to raise their children um, using natural methods, natural food. They had a farm that the children worked um, in growing things with their mother. And they also um, were trying to connect their children with their lineage, which were native cultures. So that's kind of a very Poonar Vasu thing. You know, I think that when we think of a DT, she's like the earth mother. She's also this like tribal mother, right? She might take care of other kids. Uh-huh. 
or they're, they might, this might be part of their path is to care for children. Yeah. It's quite a, I want to say all encompassing in a way, as far as like the mythology, there's all kinds of things relating to rebirth, um, relating to austere, austere devotion for 12,000 years to Vishnu, um, and like going far and wide doing different things. And I think this relates to the, the nature of the, the, the Punarvasu person, it's oftentimes seen they'll have to do things many times to get it right. But when they've done it, they usually succeed. Another uh, uh, part of Punarvasu that a lot of people kind of don't connect is the fact that they are connectors. So the Punarvasu person is going to be a conduit between people or forces like the symbol of Punarvasu is a bow, which is the medium between what the person and the arrow. Yeah. So you need all three things to make something happen. So, you know, Punarvasu has to do with three as well, right? Sometimes they say it's connected to three steps or three times, right? Yeah. Uh, so Punarvasu people might need to have three parts to what they're doing. They might need two other people to do complete the process of maybe like their business. Right. Uh, or they need somebody else to make the, uh, situation arise. Right. So they can't just do things by themselves, even though they might be in that situation, their ultimate goal is actually to connect with other people to make their uh, life more profitable. That's part of their theme is they need other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting. And one of the ways I think the mythology also has played out for Megashira is, is how, or I'm sorry, Punarvasu's is how uh, there's a, generally they, they, they show doing better later in life. Right. Um, and this can be uh, a process, I think. Um, so finding out what life brings them is oftentimes very similar to how the mythologies of just random things happening, you know, random stories. It's like they're actually going through these random dramas in their life, <laughs> uh, quite literally. Yeah, so let's talk about the next one, which is Pushya. Pushya. Which is in Cancer. We're fully in Cancer now. We're just dabbling a little bit in the previous nakshatra. So Pushya's deity is Brihaspati. What do we know about Pushya? I can share a bit on mythology of this one. Uh this is also using Victor Kerr's book, 27 Stars, 27 Gods, Milking the Earth. Sriman Bhagavatam tells a story which ties into using the udders of a cow as Pusha's symbol. Once upon a time, the earth became very weak and there was extreme famine. God had empowered a king named 
Prithu to remedy the situation. The king took up a bow and threatened the earth. You must produce, he said. The earth goddess in her form as a cow fled as fast as she could, but she could not escape the king. Submitting to him, she explained why she had been causing a famine. No one takes care of me anymore. They just take as much as they can from me and do not even use my bounty to worship Godhead. Therefore, I have made my surface rocky and hilly so that the water cannot enrich the soil and nothing will grow. But I submit to you now to change the situation. Bring me a calf. The milk I then give will restore everything I have withheld. First, the king made the chief of humanity, which was Samyambuva Manu, into a calf and obtained as milk all the grains and vegetables needed to feed the citizens. Then various groups used various people as calves, and through those calves they got all they desired from the earth. The first group to do so was the sages. They selected Braspati to become the calf and through him obtained milk from the earth in the form of mantras and hymns that would make the mind clean and pure. Yeah, and Pushya is also symbolized by a flower, a circle, and an arrow. And it represents the specific limited destiny assigned to the individual which during the course of his evolution he must aspire to and achieve the flower does not indicate the same the acme of achievement has been attained it represents the beauty and symmetry this destined to be gained the act of blossoming is more emphasized than the attainment of perfect perfection so it's never about the attainment of perfection it's about blossoming like the flower and he says, under Pushya, the individual that was given the bow in Punarvasu gets his marching orders, and now he has the arrow. The instrument set his forces in motion towards its goal, and it endows the individual with strength and power and fullness for the mission assigned to the soul. These vibrations of the flower, the circle, and the arrow are the qualities of vibrant tranquility, the absence of undue agitation, of faith in oneself, and the fullness of life. This psychological structure can exist only when the individual has attained a state of growth where there is full faith in the divine plan and unflinching confidence in their self. And because Pushya is in Cancer, they're using more of their intuitive nature to understand these goals. Right. And understand how to achieve these goals because it is, you know, Brihaspati. Uh, Brihaspati is a, a deity that loves learning. It loves teaching. It loves being in its office dressed in beautiful, uh, garb with these ancient texts writing for hours and hours and hours so this individual might be somebody that is that loves spending their days reading ancient texts and trying to uh understand the laws of nature yeah it's a pretty uh pretty cool nakshadra it's very seems powerful to me um in that Brespati being like a uh, 
and I want to say guru. Yeah, he is one is, of the three gurus. It is right. a nakshatra ruled by guru. Right. So tends to bring with it that energy of uh, guru being Jupiter, right? Um, the three gurus being Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. Which reminds me, I would do want to do an episode where we talk about how we always hear people say Jupiter is just like the most positive, beneficent planet. And that's not true. And in, in Vedic astrology, they do a very good job of uh, demonstrating that. that. But anyways, the yeah, that's cool. Future episode on the uh, the three gurus and their real energy. And an example of that, too, with Pushya, um, Vic, Vic Takara shared a story of Rispati uh, kind of slapping Indra around a little bit, not literally, but uh giving him the the facts like a jupiter person will as yeah far don't as... come into my office if you don't want to hear the truth because it's not going to be pretty especially if you're indra and you've been drinking soma all night and having sex with all the most beautiful cosmic goddesses and you're just like so what do i do now for his body i'm in love with this one but that one loves me and the respite energy <laughs> will just slap you around and tell you that you've been a fool no um yeah for so real. the mythology does say kind of like you know and it reminds me of a jupiterian person it's like you gotta you know stick to the the code or the the law or you gotta stick to the book this is what the text says this is how you get to the high road it's like you either use it or lose it right yeah um and that well is, don't overuse it and that to me is part of how pushes can be powerful right they can be the authoritative authoritative positions or the leaders they could be holding your, the up holding the law or being a counselor um so yeah a, a pretty pretty awesome nakshatra so going into the last one of this uh first of nine nakshatras deity series let's talk about i want to say this is probably one of my favorite nakshatras to talk about ashlesha with the deities of the nagas and this is the head of the hydra which is a huge huge star in the night sky if you look at the hydra um Yeah, the Nagas, um, there's a story, even, it's just like a snake. What? You look at a snake, Naga, it's serpents, right? But when you see it, there are stories of, there's mythos of rivalry and jealousy, but there's also stories of pleasure beyond paradise, as Victor Karras says here. These um, are the mystical snakes. It's not just any old you know, pedestrian snake crossing the road. These are special snakes. And even special snake being Vasuki, who is king of the dragons. That's the snake around Shiva's neck. That's his um, snake. And can I share what Vic says? Yeah, sure. Let's hear about Vasuki. From the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna says, among serpents, I'm Vasuki. The most celebrated tale involving Basuki involves how the gods and anti-gods produced the original nectar of immortality by churning the 
cosmic ocean of milk. Churning a bucket of milk will make a person tired, and churning an entire ocean was a feat even for the gods to accomplish. They needed enormous apparatus like continents to stand on and mountains to churn with. Um, everyone agreed that the king of serpents, Vasuki, would be the only being that could act as uh, a churning rod or the yeah, rope. Yeah, like the fulcrum, yeah. Um, Vasuki, however, was far off in the deepest netherworld. <laughs> Of course, doing neither world things. Doing Naga things underground. Uh, Garuda probably probably just laying in their jewels and in their, you know, cave of just looking at all their jewels. Mystical books and tools. The he would they, they ended up saying uh, talking to Vasuki and he said, If it's so urgent, carry me to the spot at once. So Garuda came along and could not lift Vasuki off the ground and <laughs> returned back to the gods empty-handed. Shiva then extended his hand to the new world and Vasuki wrapped himself around Shiva's wrist like a bracelet. Thereafter, Vasuki's firmly embraced the mountain in the middle of the ocean and the gods and anti-gods could successfully churn the cosmic milk. It says that Vasuki cooperated happily with Shiva but embarrassed Hathi Garuda it is said that snakes are enemies of common people, but they never harm a saint. Similarly, Ashlesha interests us in our, using our charm and charisma to enjoy life, but it also makes us favorable to the truly godly. I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it, how um, snakes are. And hey, if Masuki's king of the Nagas, it means there's a sense of regal energy to it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the Nagas get a bad rap, but I think what's really interesting is that the Nagas in two predominantly um, Asiatic ancient cultures appear, and that is in Tibetan shamanic Buddhism, along with the original uh, Puranic Vedic texts, Santan Dharma. The Nagas appear in both of these uh philosophies let's just say and they are the holders of knowledge and the protectors of knowledge and actually in uh tibetan tradition the nagas bring uh mystical powers so ashlesha people might be interested in witchcraft they might be interested in mystical things they might be the person that's like how can i manipulate the weather <laughs> with a candle because that's an ancient technology that people have done they've used certain herbs i mean native americans did rain dances so you can say that's a very naga ashlesha energy is the rain dance right yeah because you're trying to transmute the elements to make a chemical reaction happen and that's also you know an ashlesha thing these people might be chemical experts they might, I, they might have done great in chemistry. You know, they might be, um, and I can think of a great um, example. That I think we might have talked about on this podcast before. Rahu conjunct moon in Ashlesha, Albert Hoffman, the guy that synthesized LSD. Of course, he's going to have Ashlesha. Yeah. He's, that was just like, oops, I discovered this thing that it creates a 
mind-altering effect, which is also the product of Ashlacia. You take drugs to have a mystical experience. Yeah, you go through the neither world. <laughs> you go into... Uh, but you're coming back with that metaphorical... You shed your skin of the past yeah. of like all these limited beliefs and you end up on the other side and you're just like, man, maybe I'll just sell everything and smear ashes on my body and go live on the jungle and forage wild plants. <laughs> like that's where you get in Ashlacia. You start in Ashwini wanting to be the doctor and you end up in Ashlacia and you end up wanting to be the sadhu, right? Yeah, and another nakshatra that to me is very distinguishable from Pushya um, as far as being part of cancer and when just being a cancer, you're thinking, oh, I'm intuitive because I'm with the moon, ruled by the moon. Um, sensitive and all this stuff. Ashlacia's, uh, they do have a sensitivity, but they can also be quite uh, spicy. You so, know, what's funny is um, there's a, this is, a, I think, a great way to put that in perspective. Um, Ashlacia's asterism, which imparts intellectual and mental development enabling its beneficiaries to change their perceptions of life. These changes occur in the most unexpected ways. After the transformation, the individual is catapulted into a radically different condition of existence. Also, what I think is very prominent in um, serpents or these natives that their eyes are something people always gravitate towards or they can use their eyes to speak to other people right yeah and ashlacia's generally have very unique eyes i think their pupils are usually um you know up and down like a snake too and to a degree <laughs> i would say there's like an extra sensory perception almost yeah kind of like snakes how Just they like perceive snake, yeah they perceive nature. Um, but I, I think there's like a magnetic feature to Ashlacia's. And, you know, let's, uh, I think a good way to wrap this up uh, to make it relevant so that we can talk about somebody that everybody knows, a person with prominent Ashlacia in their chart is Joe Rogan. Yeah. And Ashlacia's, you know, he sort of looks a little He bit looks like kind of like a snake. A he look, yeah, yeah, he does look like a snake, especially with the shaved head and the eyes. I think somebody made a video of that, and they're like, Joe Rogan looks like a snake. And I thought, well, oh, man, they I'm, don't even know. I'm pretty sure his, he does his podcast at his place in the basement. Yeah, he it's has his like own, his, like, he built a lair. Yeah, he built a lair, and he's got this huge Ganesh statue in there. Um he has no idea how much he's embodying in Ashlacia. Uh, but the final thing I'll say about this asterism is that these people probably, you know, like him, can make great podcasts. They can be uh, media masters. Like this is the person you want on your social media team. This is the person that you want uh, speaking uh, as a representative for your business. This is the person that you want to... Uh, put in charge of anything that has to do with uh, connecting with the public, I'd even say. For sure. Yeah. In like an outward way, but in an inward way, if there's somebody that's more introverted 
and likes research, these are the persons you want in the laboratory doing the research because they're going to have that aha moment that's going to connect all the things that people have been working on for years and years. And they're going to take one look in that microscope and be like, oh, that's the synthesis of this and that. Or in like Rogan's case, you're open minded and being ruled by Mercury, the Gandanta points like Ashlesha, you're you're smart. You know, you can hold a debate or you can set up a perfect presentation for a conversation to take place to show opposing viewpoints or to simply discuss, like you said, research and topics that require further analysis. Yeah, um, that's like the UFC Joe Rogan that interviews all the fighters after, you know, they've they've won their match, even though he might not be like wanting that guy to have won. He's there, you know, interviewing them. And then he's like, hey, you want to come to my podcast and talk about your experience? Let's talk about your experience. You know, yeah, I think that's yeah. a it's a very <clears throat> I think Ashleys are going to be part of shaping the future. I think uh, a lot of them are doing things to help um, other people navigate reality with their own personal uh, transformative experiences. That's awesome. And uh, we got a lot more to come. So that this was, was yeah. part three of Nakshatra series that's going to go on and on and on. Part three. Um, this was part three. Oh, whoa. So we'll be putting together um, part four eventually, but this w was covering Ashwini through Ashlesha now. Um, yeah. Check us out. Some of our other episodes. If you haven't, I'd check out Nakshatra's part one um, where we get right to what is a nakshatra basically so um we'll end on that note and look forward to talking to you guys through raven's nest vedic astrology again <laughs> Devi Suresh Vadi Bhagavati Gange Tribhumana Kaha